last week's class was titled, Jesus has completed his mission, now it's up to us. And the title for this week's class is The Kingdom Narrative. The Kingdom Narrative. Last week I mentioned that because Thanksgiving is coming up, we had a decision to make about whether we should have a class on the 22nd, a week from today. Is there anyone who does not want to have class on the 22nd? How many would like to have class anyway? Okay. Yeah, so, we will have class next week, and it will be recorded, and people who aren't able to attend for whatever reason will be able to listen to it, just like people who can't come other times. And I don't know right now if that will be the last class or if I'll have one more on the 29th, because I don't know how far we're going to get in the next two weeks. I have an agenda in my mind, and I'd like to fulfill it. So we'll see. Now, remember I talked about Bible storylines or narratives and how some of them are being played out in our time right now. And there's two basic narratives in the world. There's God's narrative or God's storyline and there's Satan or the devil's narrative or storyline. Every the Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Everything in his storyline is an attempt to accomplish those three things in our lives. He, he doesn't want anything good for you and me. He only wants bad. Steal, kill, and destroy. And he's anti-God. If God has a mission or a narrative in mind, Satan's narrative will be contrary or trying to subvert that in some way to get as many people to believe and follow his storyline instead of God's. I gave an example earlier, and I'm going to repeat the examples now, because there's, I'm going to give two examples of this. One is that there's consequences to not following God's storyline and abandoning that and lining up with Satan's contrary storyline. And the other is that there's great reward for following God's storyline. So the first example is in Numbers chapter 13. You know the story of the 12 spies. Numbers 13 verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. It doesn't say, I may give or I would like to give, it says, I am giving it. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So none of the men that were sent were rank and file, they were all leaders. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. Skip ahead now to verse 26. Now they departed 
and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Two different reports. One, the report of Caleb and Joshua, lines up with God's narrative. I am giving you this land. The other ten spies gave a report that lines up with the devil. We're not able to overcome it. They're bigger than us. We don't care what God says. We know we're not going to be able to do it. They're too strong for us. Spiritual advance in any time in history requires faith. And unbelief will never see beyond the difficulties. Unbelief sees walled cities and giants rather than the presence and power of God. Unbelief looks at obstacles. Faith looks at God and his promises. Joshua and Caleb were willing to do the unpopular thing and call the people to positive faith. They led the way into the future by confronting a negative report and helping a new generation rise to serve God in faith. But the people who gave the negative report and were anti-God in that they did that, there was consequences. Here's the consequences. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? that our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Well, let's just go back to slavery. It's too tough out here. <laughs> At least we had, you know, even though we were forced into hard labor and it was brutal and we never had any <coughs> chance of getting anywhere else, at least that was better than this. Come on, after everything God had done, manna, from heaven, water out of a rock, parting the Red Sea, turning the bitter water sweet, 
having a pillar of fire to guide them at night and a cloud to guide them during the day. What more could God have done? Jesus said it is finished. He's done everything he can for us. What more can God do? It's not. It's up to us now. But whose report are we going to believe? Amen. Doubt and unbelief will cancel out anything that God could do for you. Just like it did for these <coughs> stiff-necked, God called them, people of Israel. Verse 6, But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. It's a symbol of just absolute mourning. I can't believe what I'm hearing from these people. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. God's narrative, the devil's narrative. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 11. How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? And you know what the consequences were. That generation had to spend another 40 years in the desert. The spies, the 10 spies were killed on the spot. And only the children born in freedom of all of that generation inherited the promised land. Everyone who came out of Egypt and rejected God's narrative died in the wilderness. Okay. Let's go to my next example. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. It's, it's such a familiar story. The Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sukkoth, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Aphes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. You can look up those measurements if you want. He had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. <clears throat> if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I am prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. 
Same story. Warriors on both sides, but one of them that comes out with this challenge is a giant. And all the Israel soldiers could see was his size. They didn't think about God or what he could do. So, anyway, in verse 26, David was sent by his dad to bring some supplies to his brothers who were in Saul's army. And he heard this challenge that the that Goliath was putting out. And um, when all the soldiers of Israel heard the challenge, they fled and were dreadfully afraid, it says in verse 24. But then in verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. It shall be that the man who kills him, the king, will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. That's in verse 25. So there it is. There's a reward being offered if someone has the courage to go up against this giant. And this little youth says to Saul in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing as he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. In mentioning that Goliath was an uncircumcised Philistine, David is calling on the fact that Israel was in covenant with God. And the sign of the covenant was the circumcision of all the males. And he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? But he was the only one who caught God's will in this, his narrative, and had enough faith and enough history trusting God to believe that God would come and win this battle for him, just like he had before against adversaries much greater than him. And the rewards were great. He was enriched. He got the king's daughter for a wife. His father didn't have to pay taxes anymore. So there's a reward for lining yourself up with God's narrative 
and everyone who failed to line up with that narrative, all the other soldiers, missed out on the reward. Okay. Now, what is the narrative of the kingdom of God? What is that? Well, let's let the Bible answer the question for us. I'm not going to answer it. The words of the scripture are, and we started in the beginning by saying, in this class you have to have a biblical worldview and you have to believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit to the men who wrote it. Anybody who didn't believe that, I told them, take a hike, you don't belong in this class. Okay, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is the beginning of the narrative of the kingdom of God. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and order it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's pretty clear. Daniel chapter 2. Turn to Daniel chapter 2 if you're following, starting in verse 31 through 35. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. None of his counselors or diviners or whatever they were could interpret the dream. No one could. They told him, maybe this Jewish guy Daniel has skill in that area. Maybe he can interpret your dream. So Daniel comes and says... In verse 31, you, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain which filled the whole earth. This is the dream, now we'll tell you the interpretation. And from 37 to 43, it tells the interpretation. I'm not going to read those. Verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. 
Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now remember in Matthew 13, when we're talking about the what Jesus taught about the kingdom, there was a small parable about a woman who put three little pieces of leaven in a batch of dough, and it expanded until the whole batch was leavened. And that's a equivalent in the New Testament of a, of a rock cut out without hands that smashes all the other kingdoms and then becomes a mountain that fills the entire world. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, The knowledge of the glory of God will fill the entire earth as the waters cover the sea. So obviously the stone cut out with no, without hands is Jesus. And when he establishes his kingdom, it grows into a mountain that fills the entire world. Does everyone accept that? Absolutely. Okay. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7 now. Bruce, what was the uh, Matthew 13? 33. 33, thank you. Yes, sir. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, The beast also had four heads, and a dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horns were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Many people have said that this dream of Daniel is the the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and it's talking about the same kingdoms. I, I totally disagree with that. Nebuchadnezzar's dream showed the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom under Alexander the Great, and the Roman kingdom, and then the kingdom of God came, smashed them all, and grew to fill the whole earth. That was talking about that time, before Jesus came. 
I believe that this vision, this dream that Daniel had, is talking about a future time that many of us have lived through. I believe that the first beast that was like a lion and had eagle's wings represents the British Empire. The lion is a symbol of the British Empire, and the eagle's wings, I think, represent America, which the eagle is our symbol, and the fact that they broke off from the lion tells how America broke off from England and established itself as a separate country on another side of the ocean. <coughs> it's the only place in the Bible where I believe you can find a reference that could be America. The kingdom that was a bear, we all know that that's Russia. Russia is the bear. They tried to dominate the world. They didn't succeed any more than England did. And these kingdoms were great at one time, but they never attained the greatness of world domination that they sought. The leopard represents Germany in their attempts to dominate the world in the First and Second World Wars. There were German tanks that were even known as the Leopard Division. It was a name for German tanks. But then, out of all that, there was a kingdom that had been lurking beneath the exterior of all these other kingdoms and was waiting for a chance to reestablish itself, but not through war. They wanted to do it through economic control and laws and government and seize control of the world that way, and they'd been planning it for hundreds if not thousands of years. And that is the kingdom that comes forth with this little head that speaks pompous words against the saints. I'm going to go on now. Verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand of thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn of this little, this fourth beast was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and giving to the bur given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Verse 18, The saints of the Most High God shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Verse 21, I was watching, and this same little horn was making a war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. 
Amen. <laughs> the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms because it's not a war, a kingdom of war. It's a kingdom of government and finance. It shall attempt to devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them who shall be different than all the first ones. He'll speak pompous words against the Most High. Who is it that's speaking words against God right now in our lifetime? Klaus Schwab, Yannick Noel Harari, all the people who represent the World Economic Forum, the WHO, the United Nations, and all the world banks. That's what we're dealing with here. They shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. And the saints will be given into their hand for time, times, and half a time. But the court shall be seated and shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms over the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. Now, it does not say anywhere in any of these verses that after God's kingdom is established, there's going to come a time where it has to be given over to the Antichrist, that God's people lose on earth, and that they have to have Jesus come and rescue them, it doesn't say that at all. It says the kingdom is given to the saints of the Most High. It will never be given to anyone else. Go back to Daniel 2, 44 and 45. It will never be given to anyone else. It will last forever and ever. And God has made a judgment in favor of us and that we're the ones inheriting the kingdom. And it's being taken from this evil empire that has tried to dominate the world. So we have to stand against that one world government. Yes. Remember Amos 3.7 that I told you a few weeks ago. Amos 3.7. God does not do any new thing unless he first reveals it to his servants, the prophets. (laughs) And this seven mountain Revelation was given to different prophets like Lance Walnow and Johnny Enlow. And, you know, it's the mountain of government, the mountain of education, the mountain of um, arts, and entertainment. arts and entertainment, the mountain of economy, the mountain of the mass media, the mountain of the family, and the mountain of religion. And, on, and in our lifetime, as I spoke on Wednesday night, when the when this other kingdom, this world economic kingdom, tried to dominate our culture by taking control of all seven of those mountains and forcing their decrees upon us, the church, the people of God, did not take a stand against them. And the crux of it really happened in the last three and a half years, starting with the COVID, the pandemic, as they call it, where the church wore masks, they refused to meet when they were told not to, they didn't take a stand. 
And we were told that church is a non-essential thing in our lives, but bars and casinos and things like that are essential. And we just went along with it. But now, people are starting to wake up to the truth that this system, this world system that wants to dominate the whole world and take away all our freedoms, is starting to lose ground. We're starting to understand that we've been lied to, cheated, and we're starting to take it back. But we have to be on board with God's narrative. And so what is Satan's counter-narrative? I'll tell you what it is. The pre-tribulation rapture. That is Satan's counter-narrative. If you believe that, and you talk that, and you preach that, and you spread that all over, you are doing Satan's dirty work for him. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't say that Jesus is coming to rescue us. It says, in fact, that he's coming for a victorious church and a glorious spotless bride. That's what it says. We're going to get into more of these scriptures later. In Luke chapter 12, let's go to Luke chapter 12. It's not just the Old Testament. This is everywhere. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, this is red letter words, Jesus speaking, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you put on. Life is more than food, the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then so God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Is Jesus an Indian giver? Is he giving it to us only to take it away again and give it over to this Antichrist system? I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say it anywhere. People have manufactured a narrative that's anti-God and anti-kingdom. It says the gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world. It doesn't say a salvation gospel. It says the gospel of the kingdom. When Jesus came, he said, I came to teach the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is a victorious church. A victorious world with godly, God's 
saints ruling and reigning with him as kings and priests. We'll read verses to prove this in just a moment. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 1, 1 through 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Doesn't say the revelation of the Antichrist. Doesn't say the revelation of Satan. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from him who was and is and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And there's the Melchizedek reference. Turn to chapter 4 of Revelation. <clears throat> chapter 4. The first three chapters after what I just read are the letters to the churches. But then it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. That's God the Father. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. A rainbow was God's sign of the covenant with Noah. It's been conscripted by an earthly counterfeit, but we don't believe in that. And the fact that there's 24 elders and seven spirits of God and seven lampstands and seven this and seven that and 24 this and 24 that shows you that it's talking about the earth. The earth is the only place where seven and 24 have any significance. There's seven days in a week, 24 hours in a day. There is no time in heaven. So it's talking about the earth. It's giving us clues that... There's something that we need to learn about the earth from seeing what's in heaven. Verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God are mentioned in Isaiah 
chapter 11, verse 2. I'll just read them very quickly here. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. The seven spirits of God. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, who is the Messiah, the root of Jesse, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Those are the seven spirits of God. They're all represented in the form of Jesus Christ. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. <clears throat> the four living creatures represent the four Gospels. The first creature was like a lion. second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The first creature that's like a lion represents the Gospel of Matthew. The second creature, like a calf, represents the Gospel of Mark. The third living creature had the face of a man, representing the Gospel of Luke. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle, representing the Gospel of John. You can find this on the, in different ways if you research it. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, casting their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." Chapter 5 of Revelation. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Notice it doesn't say who's worthy to open the scroll and read it, or to open the scroll and, and open the seals. It says, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? I'll come back to that. No one in heaven or on, or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And this is John speaking now. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and he says, read the scroll or to look at it, but that's not what the angel had said. So I wept much. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. After he was 
crucified, buried, and resurrected is when Jesus came to heaven and he said before he ascended, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. And he sent the disciples on his on the great commission. Now he's in heaven and he's taking that scroll out of the Father's hand. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And now they sang a new song. Remember the song they sang in chapter 4 was, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things by your will they exist and were created. But here's the new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The angels, the elders and the people in heaven, and the saints of the Most High God are the we. We shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, just as in the dream that Daniel had describing the, the throne scene. He said the same thing. Thousands upon thousands were standing before the throne. And they shouted with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Okay, there were seven mountains. And there's seven things that Jesus receives during this blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, verse 12, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Seven things that Jesus receives and each one corresponds to one of those seven mountains of influence on earth. Now, remember it said that he was the one who was worthy to take the scroll and, and uh, loosen its seals. In Matthew 18, this is really important. Matthew 18, verse 11. Jesus said this, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. He did not say those who were lost. He said that which was lost. So here's the deal. It's 
We studied the tracks of the kingdom. Way back in the Garden of Eden, when first man sinned, he lost dominion on earth to Satan. That's the that which was lost. The Son of Man came to fix it, to take back that which was lost by casting out demons, healing the sick, and raising the dead. He started to take back dominion by wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. He started to reverse the... And being hung on a tree, he reversed the curse that was on the earth and the curse of the law that was on us. By leading a sin-free life, failing to, res- failing to give in to the temptations of the <clears throat> devil... He brought us back into right standing with God, into fellowship with God again. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. So He came back to take back for mankind as a man that which was lost, that dominion. And that scroll that God had been holding all those thousands of years is, the, is, is a description of all the things that Satan has done while he was in, had dominion on earth. And now it's all about to be reversed. Because Jesus came and took back dominion for us. Hallelujah. And it's taken us 2,000 years to figure it out. At least. <laughs> and the reason that the Lamb of God, our Jesus, was worthy to receive all these blessings and praises was because He was slain and returned us to God by His blood. That's that's the reason. I'm going to talk more about those seals, but I do want you to hear this one thing. The word loose, when it says he is who is worthy to loose the seals, that word loose means to deprive them of their power and authority. Each of the seals represents one of those seven (coughs) mountains of influence that has been dominated by the satanic world system narrative until now. But when Jesus looses those seals, he's depriving them of their authority and their power and helping his church to take back the authority and power from all those seven mountains. We're going to get into this a lot more next week, but I'll lay it out in a much more complete way. I want to talk a little bit about the devil's counter-narrative now. When the devil needed a theory to explain how the earth came to be in its present form, he didn't want anybody to believe that God created everything and that it was all by the intelligent design of our powerful creator. So he gave the world the theory of evolution. And as many as bought into that and taught that and believed that, were believing a counter-God, devil-inspired narrative. And where did it get them? It got the Bible out of schools. It got a whole generation of kids believing the wrong things. It, we lost 
everything in the mountain of family, the gay marriage, abortion, all these things we've lost. It's just amazing, and it's because of things like that. I'll give you another example. When the rabbinic Jews who didn't want Jesus to be the Messiah and, and change their world back in the day needed something to explain away his Messiahship. So they invented what's called now Rabbinic Judaism and Talmud, Talmudic Judaism. It's an oral tradition handed down from rabbi to rabbi explaining everything in terms that does not include Jesus as being the Messiah. That's why there's still some Jews who believe that, who are still waiting for the Messiah to come, instead of enjoying the peace and hope and love and righteousness of knowing that Jesus is the Messiah. It was a very successful strategy. Both of those strategies have proven very successful in convincing people away from God's narrative, the truth, and into a counter-narrative that's anti-God. Anybody want to comment on that? So that's the Antichrist. What was the word before Judaism? Repentant Judaism? No, it was... It was... The law, the old covenant under the law. Okay, but you said the Jews invented, what's that word? Rabbinic. Rabbinic Judaism. The law, the the new explanation for everything after the Old Testament is now an oral tradition handed down from rabbi to rabbi that's taught to the people. But there's no written thing about it except the Talmud. And the Talmud is not a God-inspired book. It's a human construct. R-A-B-B-I-N-I-C. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so, for this discussion, the devil's narrative is... Christians are destined to lose on earth and the kingdom will be turned over to the Antichrist system and there will be a pre-tribulation rapture. That's the devil's Antichrist narrative. How many have ever heard of a secret society called the Illuminati? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Illuminati. Okay, The Illuminati... merged with Freemasons, Knights Templar, and other secret societies, and other groups, including the international bankers in Europe, headed by the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers, and they took control of world finance to the extent that all the countries, including America, became subject to them financially. I'm not going to explain about all that. But the Illuminati, this group, they decided to pay Christian theological seminaries to teach pre-tribulation rapture. And 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 millions of dollars were given to this guy named Schofield, 
to produce a Bible that features that as the primary difference between his Bible and every other previously inspired Bible. It was first brought on the scene by a guy named John Nelson Darby in the 1800s who heard it from someone else. And then there was a guy named, I think, John MacDonald who got up on podiums all over the country and says, I have news for you people. We lose here. But don't worry because Jesus is going to rescue us. And now it's being taught by very noteworthy People all over our country, Liberty University, Jerry Falwell, Dr. David Jeremiah, and others. But this was a paid-for, planned counter-narrative to the Kingdom of God narrative. And it was designed to keep Christians from being effective in advancing God's kingdom on earth the way they were destined to do it. Convincing us we didn't need to worry anymore. And they said, why polish the brass on the Titanic? It's just going to sink anyway. <laughs> Literally, that's what they said. It has been a tremendously successful counter-strategy to God's narrative. <clears throat> But what the prophets are being shown, along with the seven mountains of authority and how we need to take that all back, is just like there was consequences to not believing God's narrative in the Old Testament scriptures we read, and there were rewards for those who did go along with God's narrative, there's severe consequences now, and there's rewards for those who jump on board with God's narrative and start pushing and promoting that. As soon as I heard this, it just resonated in my spirit very, very strongly that I need to be one who's pushing and promoting God's narrative and encouraging believers to do the same and not to fall gullible to this other satanic narrative that was sponsored by our adversaries. Now, What do the Illuminati believe? They worship Satan. They worship Satan. There's an old saying, you have to serve somebody. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, but those who don't serve the Lord are serving Satan, whether they choose to or not. Before Darby and the Schofield Bible, the words pre-tribulation, rapture, never even appear anywhere in the church. In well, the, way back in the first century, when they were translating the Septuagint into Latin, somebody caught hold of the phrase from First <laughs> Thessalonians 4 being caught up, and in Latin it's rapturo. And they started talking about the possibility of some kind of rapture, but it never caught hold. Nobody ever believed Those it. Really yeah, and then it died until what you're saying. Okay. I, I looked this up a long time ago, and I, 
I'll say I got saved 27 years ago. I was a Jewish man. I never went to church. I didn't know about any of these things. I couldn't even read the New Testament Bible until God opened my eyes when I was born again. And I said, wait a minute. What is all this? It's not even in the Bible. Why are so many people believing it and telling everybody about it? I can't find it anywhere. The other thing I couldn't find is the church that the Bible describes. Sad to say. I looked for a victorious church and I couldn't find it. All I saw was a people cowering in their church buildings, clinging to their rapture rugs, waiting for the Jesus to come and save them. And I have how many have seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Most of you. Well, remember in the second movie, the horse people go to the stronghold and they're they're all holed up there and it's got these big walls and a ramp going across a moat and they hide the women and children in caves and the warriors are out there and then the, the armies of the of the evil people come and there's they're outnumbered a hundred to one. And they're just cowering in their stronghold, waiting for somebody to come and save them. And the Lord kind of showed me that's what he thinks the church people are doing. The ones who were there and who were brave and who believed that they were on the side of good and right were willing to fight, even if it meant fighting until the death. That's why it says we overcome the accuser of the brethren by the word of our testimony, the blood of the Lamb, and not loving our own lives unto death. You have to be willing to stand for the right thing, no matter how much it costs. And standing for the wrong thing gets you absolutely nowhere. And it may harm you in the long run, because you'll miss out on the rewards and on the callings that God had for you. There was a man who went to heaven and he was being given a tour by our jolly friend Peter. And every time he came past a certain building, a big, huge warehouse-like building, he wanted to go in and Peter said, no, you can't go in there. I'm not going to let you go in there. And being human like the rest of us, all he could think of was wanting to go in the one place that was forbidden for him to go in. And he said, why can't I go in there? I'm supposed to be able to do anything I want and have access to everything here. He said, it's not for your good to go in there. It's for your good not to go in. He said, I, I insist, I'm going in. So he goes in the building, and there's huge files with names and boxes on them of every person who ever lived in alphabetical order from one end of this giant warehouse to another. He goes down the rows until he finds the box that is designated for him. His hands are shaking, he opens the box, and he just starts weeping and crying uncontrollably. Because in the box was every blessing and every reward that God wanted to give them. And he couldn't because he was not obedient. There's consequences to not getting on board with God's narrative and there's really bad consequences to following the devil's narrative. 
I'm going to get into quite a bit more about the seals and other things next week, and that should be the end of it. But I wanted to get this all said today. And if any of you have questions or want to discuss it further, write them down and save it for next week. I love you all. God bless you. May the Lord show you His truth in no uncertain terms and give you peace in your heart about it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bruce, who are you talking about going into the room? And Just the guy. Oh, it's not a specific person. No, no. Oh, okay. Anybody. Yeah, I understand now. Yeah, just the guy. Sorry, I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs>